0: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge.
1: Welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of a favorite World War II podcast, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Welcome, everybody. Here we are. Before we get started, I don't know if you guys have a drink in front of you, but if you do, let's raise it high. Here's to the 15-year-olds around the world who drive their parents crazy and all the patience and nerves they've destroyed. Huzzah.
2: throw a 14 year old in there too sometimes
1: yeah so to all the parents out there of teenage kids uh this christmas isn't for you or your spouse or your bank account uh it's to uh hopefully get the kids off your back for a few days and maybe ride new year's eve in with a little bit of mary and joy but speaking of mary and joy joining us as always mary himself henry sledge and joy himself jeff copsetta how are you guys doing tonight? I'm I
2: think gonna, it would rather be
3: Joy than Mary.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's it's alliteration, Jeff, and Joy, so,
3: you know. Oh, uh, hey. okay, get it.
1: But Joy has someone in his studio, for the first time ever, on the What's the Skull About podcast, we are bringing in a guest live via another person's studio and not via another <laughs> internet connection. So we're making history here. Jeff, why don't you uh, explain to our fine listeners who are watching and uh, the fine people listening tomorrow, what's going on over in your house, fella?
3: Yeah. So, um, I kind of reconnected with a, with a long lost friend and, uh, we had a great conversation over dinner that we're going to, we're going to get into here in a minute, but, uh, I'll, I'll let him kind of talk a little bit about himself here, but his name's Dennis Blocker. And, uh, again, he's a great, great friend of mine and it's just nice to see him. And, Thanks for making the trip, man. Oh, thank you. You know, we're not, we're not like next door neighbors. You had to go through the gauntlet of San Antonio traffic. Oh boy. (laughs) So I've experienced that
1: once and that was enough for me. (laughs) I ran back to Florida post haste.
3: Right. Right. So yeah. Welcome to the show, sir. So, um, Dennis and I, and you may be able to tell the story a little bit better because a little bit more backstory, but. Um, you know, for some of the listeners that know uh, you know my tenure over at the Nimitz, um, it, Dennis kind of predates that. He kind of got the ball rolling for me. Um, and it was just kind of an odd um, just a by chance. I see a sandwich board um, at the library, the public library here in Burnett, which um, you know, now I'm serving. <laughs> actually that same library. Now I'm, I'm sitting on their, their board and, and trying to trying to do some good things there. But i driving through our old historic square and I see a sandwich board that says Pacific War Historian this weekend. And um, yeah, obviously I raised an eyebrow to that. And luckily I went to see what that was all about. Um, and that's where I first met Dennis. But like he explained earlier at the dinner table, it really started before that. Yeah. And and I'd like for you to kind of pick up from there. Sure. Um,
0: I appreciate y'all having me on here. Um, My uh, mother, uh, her father, my grandpa Levke, they're from Wisconsin, up in the Northwoods, uh, Park Falls, Rhinelander, way up there in the Northwoods. And uh, they're all loggers, carpenters. uh, Every corner of the street, there's a bar. Um, there's it's a rough place and a lot of hardy people, hard drinking people. And, uh, my, my mother knew her dad was a tough guy and that he was, uh, all about business. But she does recall, did recall in the middle of the night, um, when she was a kid, this would have been in the 19 late 1950s. She recalled hearing her dad scream out in the middle of the night and grandma would come in and see my mom. And she would just whisper that everything was fine, just to go back to bed. So then, late, years later, when uh, my grandmother died in 1998, uh, shortly thereafter, my grandpa killed himself. And uh, my mom said, "I want you to find out." She, I was massaging her shoulders one day at the table, and she said, "I want you to, I want you to find out what happened to Daddy during the war, because I really feel like he, he saw a lot of bad things, and that he was probably worn down by it." And I says, well, you know, what do we have to go on? You know, I knew he was in the Navy. I'd seen the pictures, but I didn't have any idea where. And she said, well, that's all I know, Navy. So it was like, goodness gracious, you know, but this is an insurmountable task. Was he the Pacific? Was he the Atlantic? Was he stateside the whole time? I mean, it just, but of course, you know, it's your mom. So you're going to say, yes, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. This was this would have been, 01 so two thousand one. Um, internet was iffy, right? Our family didn't have a computer; couldn't afford one. And online uh, resources,
1: no online resources are nowhere what they are today either. Because I was going to ask, where do you Roger start? That. Where do you start? Nineteen ninety eight on that task. <laughs> That's right.
0: Yeah. So we, you know, it was just. It, it really was. I was just saying yes out of being a, you know a good son. Uh, did I think I was going to find out anything? No. Um, but I did have a hobby. Um, and that goes back to my love for World War II history. And my dad was career military, Air Force. We lived, I was born in California. We moved to Guam, moved to Michigan, moved to San Antonio. And then we moved to Iceland. And then we moved back to San Antonio because the Air Force thought it would be hilarious to send us from Texas in the summer to Iceland. And then back to Texas again, <laughs> which broke my mom's heart. And I remember seeing her cry when she saw the orders for Texas. Um, you know, but it was my love of the military. I grew up in that. So that's all I ever knew and just absolutely loved that life. So it just so happens that the first movie I remember seeing as a kid it wasn't The Wizard of Oz or Mary Poppins. The first movie I remember that left an impression on me was Von Ryan's Express. <laughs> and that's with frank sinatra and i just loved that movie i loved the technicolor i loved how brash the americans were and cocky i loved how daring and risk taking the british were trying to break out at all opportunities i loved the germans who were the best dressed of world war ii and i just loved it and i loved their uniforms Loved it, right? Well, then, when I find out that, you know, of course, my grandpa's, Grandpa Blocker served in the Navy, my Grandpa Lemke served in the Navy, my dad's grandpa, Frank Sobin, served in the Army in Europe and was killed uh, in the siege of Aachen and is buried in Belgium. Mm-hmm. We have a family, the, the Mears family, who we're in contact with. And they're friends of our family. They have adopted his grave, They're Belgians and they take pictures all, all of our holidays. They take pictures at his grave, but so World War II was a big deal for me. So if that's a big deal for you and you're a kid and you're a military brat, well, then you're going to collect autographs of World War II veterans, right? You're just going to do it. You're going to, and especially in San Antonio, a convention city, you're going to be browsing the newspaper and you're going to see if there's any veterans groups coming. So, you know, I got to meet, you know, the World War II ACEs Association and got to meet Chuck Yeager and like all these 51 pilots and got to meet the Doolittle Raiders and the Flying Tigers and Tex Hill. And I made a little model airplane and I had Tex Hill sign autograph the wing. And, you know, I got to meet the Tuskegee Airmen and
2: Pearl Harbor
0: guys and the code breakers and the code talkers and, you know, on and on and on and on. Well, if you have that hobby, you're darn sure gonna get your grandpa's autograph.
3: You you can see why we're friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He had me at model airplane. (laughs) You're darn sure gonna get your grandpa's autograph. So, you know, when your mom says, what, find out what happened to daddy during the war and you have no clue, then you recall, okay, grandpa signed one of my books. So I went to it and thank God he signed it, seaman first class cliff Flemke, lci 449 1943 1945
1: that's awesome and my mom
0: says you know i think i remember grandpa uh circling and then finding a map in that book And i think he circled islands where he was so i flipped to the middle of the book and sure enough he circled the marianas and he circled iwo jima and uh that started me on my uh that started me on my course because I knew, okay, I got to find out what an LCI is. And I, gotta, and I know he was on the 449 and I know he was at these places. So now, you know, let's track down the story. So,
3: so fast forwarding a little bit, uh, I as I'm trying to recall from a book talk, you know, that you did years ago when we first met, 449, you had mentioned to a veteran that kind of was like, oh,
0: yeah, so that, that was, um, that was actually a convention in San Antonio. There was a uh, LCI Association convention that, that was showing up in the newspaper. Well, that was a no-brainer, right? So I go down and I park at the River Center Mall, I'm walking between the Manger Hotel and the old Joski's building along the alley there. And uh, I just there's just guys everywhere wearing blue hats with this gold embroidered hats that say, USS National LCI Association. So I was just like a kid in the candy shop. I mean, I I had struck gold. So just stopping everybody. My grandpa was on an LCI. Which one were you on, sir? And it was like, you know, 555 and 629, 973, 1091. So of course I'm doing the math on that, right? And the laws of probability. It's like, okay, <laughs> 1091. Like, oh my gosh. It's like the chances of me finding somebody from the four, four, nine. I mean, there were a lot of LCI's and but I kept after it all day, just stopping everybody. And of course, getting their autographs, but you know, <laughs> I'm down by the river walk towards the end of the day. And I see a couple guys getting up from the table and they're reaching for their wallets, figuring the tab for the tip and whatnot. So I, I approached him and I was like, you know, hey, uh, sir, my name's Dennis. Uh, my grandpa was on an LCI. I just wondered if you guys were. And one guy says, uh, what LCI was your grandpa on? And I was like 449. And uh, he froze and he turned and looked at me and he said, 449, was he at Iwo Jima? And I go, yes, sir. He goes, did he survive? And of course, now I'm like, uh, yes, uh, why? He goes, what do you know about your grandpa's ship? I says, nothing. I know absolutely nothing. He says, well, your grandpa's ship was at Iwo Jima two days before the invasion on the recon mission with the underwater demolition teams. They were covering Team 14 on Yellow Beach 2. The Japanese thought that mission was the invasion and they opened up with everything they had. And they said, your grandpa's gunboat was hit three times by mortars and raked by weapons fire. He said, of the crew of 70, your grandpa's gunboat had 21 killed and 22 wounded. 60% of the crew was down. He said, did you know that your grandpa's skipper received Iwo Jima's first medal of honor? And I was just stunned. No, sir, I didn't know that. Mm. So he says, well, he did. His name is Rufus Herring. He's from North Carolina. He said, uh, we have three more days here in San Antonio. When I get home, I'll send you a list of current members in the association from the 449. So it turns out that how that guy knew that was he had been a, a radio man aboard the Battleship Nevada. And he was sitting right next to the Admiral and right there on the radio. And he had binoculars and he watched everything. Wow! And he was so impressed by the bravery he witnessed that day of these gunboats that he made it his mission to tell their story and he never forgot it. And uh, he went to the archives many times, retrieved all kinds of records, actually found movie footage of the gunboat group at Iwo Jima that day. And he shared that with me and I was able to see my grandpa's gunboat uh, heading in towards, and their reference point was Suribachi, so I was, it was pretty powerful, and then sure enough, a week later, I got that package in the mail, and uh, there were 14 names, and so I just started calling, <laughs> you know, some of the guys had gotten out before Grandpa came aboard, some of them were after, they were part of the relief crew, because the entire crew was given survivor's
3: leave um, after that evil mission, but um, yeah, it's what started it. So, and, you know, Don, I think it's important too that we, you know, just for the sake of our listeners, when we think about Iwo Jima, we think of a flag. Mm -hmm. We think of Marines. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe, maybe we think of B-29s limping in and P-51 squadrons. Um, But until I met Dennis, I had no idea about how important these LCI gunboats were. Not not only because of covering the UDTs, right? These underwater demolition teams, they're basically going in these sea lanes, making sure, clearing it of mines uh, for the upcoming invasion. But indexing on Suribachi was crucial because the Japanese thinking this is the main assault two or three days prior, right? Um, They're opening up with everything they have and people are paying attention to where those flashes are coming from. And... Once we finally did land on the nineteenth of February, that was crucial in figuring out what we needed to fire back at where they were in these you know these caves and these bunker systems and everything that was just that honeycomb that was Suribachi. So, well, not to it, mention I think the it's uh, just,
1: not to mention the hit that the munitions cache took too. It's a lot absolutely. less lot less ammo for them to lob during the main invasion.
3: Right, right. So it's just something if it's just so overshadowed that that really is when you get down to the meat and potatoes of this battle was just so pivotal of what his grandfather did um i think the
1: navy suffers that a that, lot i think the navy when most people think the navy they think of aircraft carriers and battleships yeah. and screens but the landing crafts the you know all the other crafts in the, in the navy the guys actually get closer to the shore I think a lot of that stuff with the exception of obviously Kennedy and his PT one to nine, I think a lot of that, as far as Navy go, gets lost in history and it's maybe we need to try to make it our job to bring a lot more of that up and and shine a spotlight on those guys.
3: Absolutely. So
0: um, really, if I could interject something, uh, if there was ever one moment, I think that that could encapsulate what happened uh, with these, it was LCI group eight and they were part of LCI Patil 3, and there was 12 gunboats. And they were heading in to cover these uh, demolition teams, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And uh, so there's about a hundred frogmen in the water. Um, and, and these gunboats are going in, they're gonna lay down rocket barrages. They're gonna you know, just cause mayhem, draw attention to themselves. Well, uh, they definitely drew the attention, but I, I think if there's any one phrase that could sum up what ended up happening, it would be the report, the final report from the commander of all UDTs, uh, Captain um, Ball, Red Ball Hanlon, Eugene Red Hanlon. He said that he wished and he actually recommended that they take an excerpt from the radio traffic of the gunboats to the command ships. He recommended they excerpt one of their messages that he overheard himself, and it was one of the gunboats that had been hit several times. It had come out with to get casualties off. And then the radio message was fires under control, request permission to return to the firing line. Wow. And it it wasn't fires extinguished. It wasn't holes are all plugged in the ship. It was fires under control, request permission to return to the firing line. It just left such an impression on him. And what ended up happening was there were BDI sailors all over the, the 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 Texas, the the Tennessee, the Nevada, uh, all over the destroyers that were there, the Twigs, the Hull, um, and, and these guys were they were they were seeing where these Japanese guns were firing from, and they were jotting them down. And the Nevada and the Tennessee, like, just bravely. Steered point blank. I mean, 12 gauge shotgun to the face. Wow. They went point blank, and there is uh, uh, records of Japanese uh, pieces artillery tumbling down Suribachi from this uh, barrage that these battleships unleashed um, because they had been firing on the gunboats, and they revealed against actually against Kobayashi's orders uh he actually told them not to fire but they did and they weren't there on d-day and those those and, and, and an example of how accurate these artillery were in suribachi the the gunboats that were on the left flank that was going to be the 474 the 473 the 455 these gunboats were getting holes right through the giant numerals on the bow Like these guys were punching holes in the engine room. Like my grandpa's side. Now they were more to, you know, yellow beaches. So that was, they were getting mortar. They were getting, you know, machine gun, this and that. But those guys, they were dealing with the artillery and they were so accurate. They actually put one shell, opened up the hole to the engine room in the 474. And then another shell through the same hole and then blew up uh, the engines. But those weapons weren't available on d-day mm. because they had been taken out by the battleships and it's a tremendous uh when, you know and i always one of the things that i like to comment on whenever i have the opportunity is you know when the marines were heading into to the beaches that day on the 19th uh, they were traveling over water that held 54 sailors who had died uh who were resting on the ocean floor Wrapped in canvas, and uh, they had gone down. They had died, and there were, you know, 150 wounded out of these gunboats. And uh, the 474 was sunk, and three of them had to be towed back to Saipan. And uh, it was one Medal of Honor, eleven Navy crosses, about a hundred bronze and silver stars, and uh, over 200 Purple Hearts awarded to this tiny group of maybe 800 sailors. uh, And nobody knows what happened.
3: You know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't want to fast forward too much, but, you know, you, you clearly uh, answered the call uh, of your mom saying, I'd like to know what happened to dad, yeah. and grandpa. <laughs> um, and so you you kind of found these little crumbs uh, that led you the way to what is now um, a, an incredible, an incredible book. Yeah. So, um, you know, Can you, can you maybe pull a couple of these? And you you, you said you interviewed like 400 people. Yeah, it was about 400. 14
1: years. For the sake of of our audience, can we get the name of the book?
3: Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. The book is called the heart of hell and it's written by Mitch Weiss. And we'll get into why uh, my name isn't on the cover later, but, uh, it's called the heart of hell and it was on the New York post must read list. It's a tremendous read. And, um, I've written three books now since then, and using the skills that I learned from Mitch, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Um, The title comes from a poem written by Bruce Hallett, one of the guys that I I interviewed. When I called Bruce for the first time, his wife, Phyllis, answered the phone. And uh, of course said, you know, hi, my name is Dennis, calling from San Antonio, looking to see if Bruce is there. And she's like, yes, uh, he's right here. So he gets on, I was like, sir, my name is Dennis. Uh, my grandpa served on the lci 449 i wonder if you served on that ship and he says yes i did and he says just a minute and and i could hear him take the phone and i heard it click against the uh ceramic tile of his kitchen counter then i heard him vomiting into the sink he just started throwing up into the sink and of course i'm like you know oh my gosh i just killed somebody and uh His Phyllis got back on the phone and she's like, Bruce is wondering if you can call tomorrow. And I was like, my God, I'm never calling again. I'm so sorry. I I didn't mean I'm just trying to find out what happened to my grandfather. She says, no, no, he insists he wants to talk to you. Please call him tomorrow. So um, I I called the the next day and that started a uh, tremendous friendship that we had over a decade. And we got together several times. There's a restored lci up in portland oregon the 713 um we had a reunion up there and i was able to walk with him through the ship and he walked me through where everybody was hit and the hits they took with the mortars um and then he took me up to the bow where he was um on the one of the uh he was the pointer position on the 40 millimeter up there and he told me showed show me where he he crawled out of the the gun tub and hugged the prow of the ship as he was uniform was on fire and smoking and he had a huge gouge out of his hip and um it was a uh, but anyway the, the title of the heart of hell comes from a poem he was taken aboard the ship called the USS Terror and of all ships that came to their help it was one called the Terror a minesweeper and um when he was laying on the deck and they were on their way to Saipan for uh medical aid um he wrote a poem um he had been tended and cleaned and given morphine and uh, he was laying there in his bunk on the ship and he wrote a poem and um he called it what price glory and one of the lines said he felt that he'd been dropped into the heart of hell and that's where we got we got the title of the book from bruce um one of the really uh interesting interactions I had was with the uh, engineering officer, Ensign Leo Vidal from Akron, Ohio. He was the only officer of seven that was still on his feet. Uh, three were killed, three were wounded, and he was the only one still on his feet. He'd been in the Pacific about two months. This was his first mission, and they handed him the keys to the car, <laughs> and he's got a ship that's listening to port, um, He's it's on fire. He's got sixty percent casualties, and he's the only officer. And now he's in command. And wow. uh, the the bravery that he exhibited that day uh, earned him the Silver Star and um, the respect of us. And he he just became a legend to so many of us because I knew that if he hadn't reacted the way he did, I wouldn't be here because uh, of his actions that day. But when I went to interview him in person up in Akron. Um, I I drove up to the front of the house and I walked around the side and uh, he was messing with a squirrel trap alongside the side of the house. And uh, (laughs) he was complaining and cursing under his breath as I was walking up. He was just damning these squirrels who were tearing up his roof. And uh, it was just kind of ironic, you know, he fought the Japanese and it was squirrels that were getting him. But uh, (laughs) we went into this house and we, I set up my tripod and my digital recorder and my voice recorder and, got everything going. And we sat and talked and um, it was it was something I'll never forget. And he he said that he had the uh, when they got hit on the bow, he had to make a decision. Do I run through the galley area? Or do I go up top, across the gun deck and then down into the well deck? And he says, Well, I'll just I'll just run through the galley area. So he's sprinting through he comes up top and when he does, they get hit again. And he said that a, a leg flew from the front of the ship and flew over his shoulder. And he um, he looked over to the right and there was a gunner's mate, third class Howard Schoenleben standing there. And he had developed a, a friendship with gunner's mate Schoenleben. Um, Schoenleben was from Chicago and he was on Christmas morning, uh, Bedell got a one of the small boat and put a word out on the ship. We're going to have Christmas mass on Saipan. Anybody want to go? Schoenleben was the only one that said, I'll go. So he gets on the ship and these two, Ensign Bedell, gunner's mate, Schoenleben, are heading into shore for Christmas mass. They get hung up on a reef and they're stuck out there all day waiting for the tide to change. Right? They're flagging people down. Nobody's paying attention. So what ends up happening is, is that they just talk and they get to know each other very well and a friendship. And now Biddell looks over and Schoenleben is stumbling across the deck, and uh, Bidell told me that he could see his arm, left arm was gone and that his chest cavity was open and he could see his heart beating. He could actually see his heart beating. And he walked up to Howard and he put his arm around his waist and he knew that uh, Boykman had set up a first aid station the pharmacist made on the fantail and he put his arm around shone waist and he said uh come on buddy let's let, let's go back here and he was walking him to the back and he laid him on the deck and uh when he laid him down he was grimacing and this and that of course and he he said he gave him a couple syrettes of Siretza morphine and then he told me he says dennis it's the weirdest thing but when i had shone there in my arms uh he looked at me and he said howie 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 and then his eyes closed and he was gone. And he said, it's the weirdest thing. I don't know what it meant. Well, a couple of years later, I was visiting with one of the crew members who was in a photo with my grandpa on the ship, Seaman First Class Charles Hightower from Russellville, Arkansas. And I asked our Hightower about Schoenleben. And he goes, yeah, I remember Schoenleben. He goes, you know, before we went to Iwo, the mail finally caught up with us at Saipan. And, um, Schoenleben got a letter and he says, I'll never forget it. Schoenleben running around the ship, waving this letter over his head. I have a son, I have a son, I have a son. And his wife had named him Howard after himself. So now I knew what Howie, Howie, Howie meant. And now I have a new mission, right? So I went to my computer and I typed in Howard Schoenleben, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois, No his. So then I broadened it, Illinois, no hits. Okay, United States, and there was one, San Diego, California. So I called, and I left a message, um, Mr. Schonleben. I think my grandpa served with your dad. If you give me a call, he called back a couple of days later, and he said, I, "I appreciate the call, but I don't think my dad served with your grandpa because my dad was killed during the war." I says, "Was your grand, was your dad killed?" on February 17, 1945 at Iwo Jima aboard a LCI 449. And the line was quiet. And he said, how'd you know that? I says, well, what do you know about your dad's death? He says, all I know is that we got a letter in the mail saying he'd been killed and was buried at sea per Naval tradition. I says, Mr. Laban, I have an amazing story to tell you. And I told him that your dad said your name three times at iwo jima and died and he told me later he says you know dennis in that moment his picture had always just been just some man but in that moment he became my dad and he says and he changed me forever
3: hmm.
0: and then the story gets even crazier i was because I, I even now i still do it I'll go on in the message boards and I'll run a Google. I'll just put in a sailor's name, someone who died. And I put in Howard Schoenleben and there was a message from Indiana that said, does anybody know anything about a gunner's mate, Howard Schonleben? My neighbor was renovating their house and a purple heart fell out of the wall. <laughs> and on the back is inscribed gunner's mate, third class, Howard Schonleben.' Well, I weird. was like, this is too weird. So I called up Howard. And I'm like, Hey, are you missing a purple heart? <laughs> <laughs> He says, uh, he goes, yeah, he goes, uh, you know, we lived in Chicago when I was born, but my mom's folks are from Indiana, and we went to live with them after the war, and he says, I I, I lost it there. He says, I do remember that I had a secret compartment in the wall that I used to keep things, and I guess maybe, <laughs> he goes, but that's kind of where I lost it, and I'm like, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors were renovating Power of the The bathroom. They were renovating the bathroom, which was on the other side of that bedroom. And they tore open the wall, and that purple heart fell out. So this little town, they flew him out, and they had this little ceremony, and they were able to give him back his his dad's purple heart. And then Schoenleben came to this reunion, and I had the honor of walking him up to Ensign Leo Bedell, who was there. And I said, uh, Mr. Bedell, I want to introduce you to somebody. This is Howard Schoenleben. This is Howie. Howie. This is Howie. Yeah. So he threw his arms around him, and they walked off to a private table off in the corner by themselves. Man, I wish I had a little digital recorder. (laughs) I hit record, and I'd toss
3: it underneath that table.
1: Yeah, that's a lamentable uh, song.
3: You know, it, it makes me think, Don and and Henry, you guys, you know, I mean, if if these things could talk, you know, I, Henry, we just talked about that with with what I sent you a couple weeks ago. You know, man, if this artifact right. could talk, you know, and and we're lucky that you know we we have had um, some of the resources available to to how we know your father as well as we do because of modern you know, film and, and documentaries, and, but he's one of so many. And it's just just hearing about that Purple Heart. And a lot of times, they weren't always inscribed, right? They were supposed to be, but they, they they weren't always. So that's just, it's incredible. And, and that's not the only incredible, if I remember right, you, you interviewed two guys that didn't live too far apart, that had a surprise,
0: right? Yeah, that's right. That was Chuck Banco, Uh, Gunners, the gun captain on the bow 40 and Bruce Allett, who I mentioned earlier, they were best friends. They lived, you know, miles from each other. Um, And they both thought the other was dead uh, because the gun took a direct hit on the ammo locker. They took a direct hit on the ammo locker and uh, it evaporated um, several of the guys. And then um, Lawrence Bozart was killed there. Uh, Ensign uh, Cooper was blown off the ship. And is still listed as missing in action. He was never recovered. Uh, but you know, the thing was, is that, you know, they thought each other had been killed. And so, you know, when I was interviewing Banco one day, he was telling me about his buddy Hallett, you know, and how he had died. And I was like, Hallett's not dead. I interviewed him last week. <laughs> wow. Uh, do what's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, I, I told, I called up Hallett uh, and and he was just blown away. And so I have this great picture of all them sitting at a picnic table and with their wives. And gosh, I bet at <laughs> so some point, right, 60, 70 years later, maybe. And late. they had no idea. 60 miles away from each other. 60 miles away. At
1: some point, one of them had to think to himself, if I only would have went to that damn reunion. Right. I told yeah, you, Sheila, right. we're supposed to go in 55. But no, we had to get your mom's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh poor so, Sheila.
3: Uh man, I gotta take a break from that. That that is just it gets me every time. I, I was so excited, guys. You know, I mean, oh, I, no, I, I'm No, no, I'm I'm heard... riveted.
1: This is fantastic yeah. stuff.
3: It 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 really is. And you know, I've heard it, I've heard Dennis talk about this before, and you know, um I was so excited, and I didn't want to say too much. You know, I didn't want to tell you guys too much. I didn't want to give too much away to our our listeners. But I mean, Henry, I'm—I'd like to know. You know what? What is what's running through your mind? uh, Just knowing, you know, your dad obviously making multiple invasions. How much of the Navy was, of course, a part of that? Right. Um. and, And. and how many sailors that your dad ran across, just just go into the head, just wherever. I mean, those close quarters, the stories that, you know, this, that if it wasn't for people like Dennis, for this stuff to not, or I guess we really should credit your mom, right? I mean, right. obviously all the credit goes to his grandfather and the greatest generation, what they did,
2: mm-hmm.
3: but without being able to record it. And, and I'm still impressed. So, you know, Dennis spent 14 years researching all this to become the book that it is today. And you guys heard he's rambling these names. He's rambling off where they're from. You know, I mean, it's just ingrained in them. So, Henry, I'm curious, does this this bring anything back that's not necessarily Eugene Sledge the Pacific? Is this bringing anything, just stories from your dad talking about his times with meeting maybe – talking to a sailor that they just kind of were buddy buddy for a day or two and never saw each other again. Is anything like that resonating?
2: Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, apart from the the fact that just Dennis's obvious, you know, passion, he's, he's afflicted with the same sickness that we are, you know, <laughs> uh,
3: you know, it's,
2: it, it, he's yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just, really cool to share this and hear this i mean i guess i get what you're saying i mean so to answer your question jeff i mean some things that that kind of bulbs going off in my head or things i've come across researching my dad's unpublished writing and i don't want to get you know too much into that but they getting back they've been training on Guadalcanal. they wrote a, a late um lcvp out to the McCracken, okay, and then they were gonna go to Ulithian and stage out for Okinawa. That part is in the book. Um, what isn't in the book is he does down in the galley after they got hoisted up onto the McCracken because all the, the, the flotilla had set sail, and they were the last LCVP off of Guadalcanal, you know, when they were training that day because the coxswain got lost. And they get out to the McCracken and what didn't get published, is a little tidbit where he goes down in the galley and ends up talking to one of the crewmen of the mccracken and the mccracken had been i think it was the mccracken uh had been in the mediterranean and they had seen some stuka dive bombers and they had a little conversation about that Hmm. Uh, and and it's not a long drawn out thing and i don't want to sell it like it is but i'm trying to answer your question the best way i know how and that that's something that comes to my mind the other Thing that comes to my mind um is just dennis you've had so much interaction with with World war II. i mean i wish you know I, it never occurred i mean i guess i was so close to a growing up with my dad and hearing his stories and interacting you know on a very limited basis with some of the guys from his unit and other people who would call him through the years um i wish it had uh, would have occurred to me to go to a veterans reunion you know back in the 90s but, but see i didn't i mean i always had a passion for the subject you know don and jeff we've talked about this now many many times but it didn't really kick in you know until these last 15 20 years and you know by then i mean i've got a family of my own and i'm trying to do the day job thing and <clears throat> excuse me and it never occurred to me to try to go to a Veterans Association meeting. And I mean, God, the 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 wealth of information mm-hmm. and interaction, you know, that, that you could avail yourself of at something like that, you know, I mean, it's it's just, it just gives me chill bumps to think about it. And Dennis, you've done so much of that. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever wanted to say I took any of it for granted, but I guess I was so close to my dad's part and I heard so much of him talking and, and and I engaged him in so many conversations, you know, to really step out beyond that and reach out to other guys in the unit um, is just not something I did on an extensive basis. Yeah. Hey, Dennis. Yeah.
1: Go ahead. Hey. Now. I was going to say, um, no, go ahead, Jeff. Cause my question is going to go a little off the, this current topic so if you have a follow-up statement please take it now
3: well no it's just what what henry was saying is a a lot like what we were just talking about earlier before the show where you know he was just kind of looking around at at some of the signature that guy's like man we've been so lucky (laughs) and but you know henry you're right like i I... henry we were just actually (laughs) having that conversation (laughs)
0: about how fortunate we we were to have that drive you know and that admiration and then act on it not just wow that's amazing and then get on with something else but to actually like yeah but but I, we, I got
2: one say what you're gonna say but i got one tiny anecdote after that but say what you're gonna say jeff no i just i think we
3: probably all maybe took a little bit of it for granted because like i mentioned to, to dennis earlier i mean yeah i've got a few eight by ten glossies that i had signed by World war ii vets, but you know in middle school i told him i just had like a piece of notebook paper that i would carry around with me I had all these signatures, who knows where that's at now. And, but then I think about my son, you know, we were talking about the Dallas air show here recently and all that stuff. And, you know, he's got the sense of mind that he's got a helmet liner for one of his M1 helmets that he's got signatures all over this liner, but he's talking to guys that are like 101 years old that are just kind of nodding. Cause they can't understand the word you're saying. They can't hear, like, right. oh, yeah, mm-hmm, you know, but I was talking to guys, we were talking to guys in their, you know, 70s that were walking. Around. Oh, my dad's 72. I don't think of my dad being any, he can't be 40 in my mind, but he's 72 it's sharp. And that's the age of, the, yeah. you know, it was 50 years ago for them. And it wasn't, there was always going to be World War II vets, you know? And yeah. I remember, yeah. you know, mentioning at an air show, there'd be six or eight Tuskegee airmen under a canopy, like, oh, I'll talk to those guys later, you know? And, you know, I think what, what really i think what spurred that was we talked about of course what's been probably over talked but we talked about a little bit about the crash at the dallas air show and i took pictures of every airplane there but i didn't take pictures of the texas raiders because we were going to go in it later that day and i didn't take a picture of the p63 because i've seen it 10 times and going back through my pictures of the air show it kind of dawned on me wow those are the only two two
1: airplanes and I didn't take pictures of, cause you take That's it crazy. for granted. Yeah, you do, and it, um, it, it's so true though, because like I I've been reenacting for ten years. I my first few years, every event, only time I would only time I'd pull my phone out was to take photos, take photos, take photos. And like last couple of years, like I might pull it out once or twice, and then I get home like, why the hell? Why was I being so lazy that I couldn't put my gear on and get some photos taken? It's like after all, like oh, I've seen these jeeps, I've seen this stuff, but. Every once in a while, there's something new or, you know, something that you wish you would have taken a picture of. And we all kind of get, you know, especially at our level, complacent with it. And, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to, to remind yourselves we got to not get complacent with what we're doing, especially in this hobby. Right. Dennis, a question I had for you, because I've been looking. Um, there are, you know, five, six main resources that you can go to, and we have a lot of those. Posted on wtspworldwar2.com, where you can go if you have like a service number, or a first name, last name of a, of a relative who served. Um, but in the case of my grandfather, like I was able to find his enlistment papers, and um, like when he when he enlisted. And that's pretty much it. Where can if people try like those four or five main website resources, and just for whatever reason, their relatives fam uh information wasn't digitized where's another primary resource someone can go to try to find war records on a relative from world war ii or even korean war for that matter
0: it just uh it just uh, last week i had a guy approach me uh steve eccles and uh he's a friend and we talked at thanksgiving dinner he invited me over to his house and with his wife and uh came up that his grandpa was in the Navy in World War II. So I told him, I says, you know, what what ship was he on? He's like, I have no idea. I'd like to know. I says, "Uh, send me his name, birthday, state he grew up in, and I should be good. I I should be able to help you out. So uh, he sent that to me, and within minutes, I had the answers for him. And the site I use is Ancestry.com, right? (laughs) So you go on Ancestry.com, they have the muster rolls for the United States Navy, World War II. So I enter, and fortunately, it wasn't John Smith, but it was Steve <laughs> Eccles. John Doe. <laughs> but I enter in, Steve, or I enter in uh, Steve Eccles' grandpa's name. I forget his first name now. But, um, and it showed that he was on an APA and, uh, in the Pacific, right? He was on an APA. Well, I didn't know Pacific at the time.
2: And On the muster
0: roll, it shows date of enlistment, it shows service number, it shows date first reported aboard ship, and uh, and then there's other documents you know, you can follow the muster roll, this and that, right? Well, how, why is that important? Well, then then you go to fold3 fold, then the number three fold3.com. All right, so now I know that his grandpa was on this apa we'll just say the apa smith since i said that name earlier and uh you go on fold3.com and they sent teams out to the archives and they scanned every single action report war diary uh from the ships in world war ii from the u.s navy in world war ii so i go on there and i enter in uss smith right And it comes up with just page after page after page of documents available, uh, war diaries and that. So in about five minutes time, he went from knowing nothing about his grandpa to now knowing that his grandpa went aboard this transport at Rhode Island, Newport, Rhode Island, traveled. It was a first crew traveled down through the Panama Canal. He had no idea that his grandpa had seen the Panama Canal and had traveled through it. Went to the West Coast, took on troops in San Diego, crossed over to Pearl Harbor, then went to Ulithi, then was in t- took troops to invasion beaches of Okinawa, then went to the Philippines. So he went from knowing nothing to now you know that your grandpa was on in these invasions. And I told him, I says, let me ask you a question, not World War II. I said, Steve, how how did you feel on September 11th? Hmm. How did you feel that day? Were you scared because you didn't know how many more planes were coming in that day and where they were going to hit? I says, I vividly recall Mm -hmm. being very nervous, not knowing what other cities were going to be hit. How extensive is this plan, right? I says, now the reason I ask you that, Steve, because your grandpa was on an APA attack transport at Okinawa. Wow. I said, are you aware of what happened in the skies (laughs) at Okinawa? He's like, no. I said, have you heard of the Kamikaze? So then I had to tell him, like, imagine how you felt times a thousand, right? Because there were thousands of these aircraft coming in over that time and the Navy lost ungodly amounts of ships and people out there and your grandpa went through that he went through that he had to go to general quarters every single day because there were aircraft coming in and they were a target excuse me you're a transport you're a target right so now in regards to your question here's another thing that, that i recommend that folks out there that want to know about their families now with the action report and the muster rolls what's awesome is with the must of the ship for Eccles, for instance, you know, I then I know that from May 44 to August 45, his grandfather was on that ship, right? So I know that any record I find in that time period, his grandpa experienced that event, right? So then what you do is you go to the National Archives in DC, College Park, Maryland, and you do what I did. Take the little class, they teach you how to handle documents. You go up to the fourth floor, the second floor, you put on your white gloves, you fill out your form that you want, deck log, in my case, LCI 449. You wait, they bring it out, and I'm standing there holding the deck log of my grandpa's gunboat. Wow. Right. And I'm just stunned, right? I, I thought Absolutely. they were gonna bring me copies.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I'm standing there
0: holding this. It's got coffee stains, it's got, and and there's looking at me, these college student interns, and they're like, Can we help you? And I'm like, this is the deck log from my grandfather's gunboat. This was with him in the invasions in the Pacific. They're like, Yes. <laughs> 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 and they just kind of turn me and push me toward the tables. Go that way, young man. (laughs) So that's what you can do. And then what you do is you just, you know, you get to get it cleared and you just take pictures of everything. Right. And then what you do is you get a map of the Pacific because in the deck log of the ship is going to be a coordinate, right? So you can actually travel with your grandfather in the Pacific the entire time. He's in the Pacific. Now, a lot of a lot of veterans were told when they asked they were told that all your records burned up in this big fire in st louis right we've all heard about that they all your records burned up in the big st louis fire now that's true if you're the army but it did not affect navy and a lot of people don't know that so a lot of people didn't didn't look for their records because they were just told they burned up so that is not true it didn't affect the navy now in regards to looking for army it's tough Mm -hmm, it is tough it's tough
3: so i'm curious i mean i know a little bit with ancestry you kind of have to have a paid account yeah. to be able to access certain things Full, but it's yeah. fold three fold three is, is pay as well i'm, I'm as well. on there
1: now it's actually an ancestry site i'm on the, i'm actually on there now looking for my girlfriend. okay so yeah it's actually and i do want to say ancestry. one thing
3: too from personal experience <laughs> because dennis has actually done this for me um not for a family member but for the first World War II veteran that I remember meeting that lives right around the block from me in New Jersey, walked past his house every day, walking to school. Um, he was, uh, Baker Company, 1st Raider Battalion, Tulagi, August, 1942. And, um, the stories, and then Tarawa and he would tell me these stories down in the den with his sunglasses on because of the malaria mm-hmm. and the more i got into world war ii and the more i started really kind of narrowing focus on the pacific uh Guadalcanal was always kind of some weird fascination of mine until i started reading about tar with and that was it um but to 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 really have okay, Tulagi—that's like this little speck—and and Baker and dog companies and maybe one parachute regiment, you know, a paramarines, like okay, this is really narrow. I could never find anything anywhere. Uh, I could never find his name on a muster anywhere for for the Raider battalions. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away um, this time of year. I think well, actually, gosh, probably tomorrow, December twentieth of 2003 because I deployed March of 2004. And I remember it was very tough for me to hear that he had passed away. I'd sent him a Christmas card and his wife told me that he got the card in the hospital, but he was the one who told me when I was a little kid, I said, I, I want to grow up and be a war hero like you. And he said, you're, you're not going to meet war heroes cause they don't come home. And I, yeah. he's the first one that told me that now where Dennis comes in is I said, Hey, Dennis, I, I-, I contacted a Raider battalion, um, Page, right? Raider Battalion Association, whatever, couldn't find him anywhere. So I gave him what I knew uh, of this Marine and got a lot of cool stuff. I still have it in in one of my books, you know, everything that printed out. He didn't join the Marine Corps until the 7th of November, 1942. This is three months after the Baker, uh, after uh, the First Raiders hit Tulagi. Therefore, there's no way he was on Tulagi with the First Raider Battalion. Um, ended up, I think it was sixth. Henry, maybe that does this sound right? Sixth Battalion, 22nd Regiment,
2: and 22nd think, Marines, 22nd or, Marine Regiment, yeah, 22nd Marines. Um, oh, man, oh, God, when you get past second division and third division, man, I start getting fuzzy on which regiment was with which division. I know well, oh, yeah. the, the Raider Battalion didn't it become the fourth division or did that become the sixth division? I should know this.
3: Yeah. They, I forget how they got rolled. Well, cause fourth sounds right. The first or second Raiders second, second Raiders, I think became fourth. Yes. I'm not sure about Edson's Raiders anyway.
2: Yeah. I. It,
3: <laughs> you gotta be <laughs> careful what you wish for, because I, I, I'm not so sure what I thought, he was he may not have been and it and according to the record and he was somewhere where a lot of the unit got sick and there was there was a hospital ship muster that he showed up on and it it was later in the war and and i want to say it was maybe outside Kwajalein, maybe kwagulin atoll there 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 was an island campaign that his unit was a part of but i just feel like it was so overshadowed it was kind of like the forgotten battle between Tarwa and Iwo jima well Tini out in and the Sarkin. Marshalls yeah man um, a lot of
2: those small central Pacific that was part of the central Pacific drive but the you know Waji and melo Lap and right you know Tarawa. not to be confused with Tarawa right. you know right. a lot of those were they just kind of run together mm-hmm. I mean it was called the marine aviation it was the doldrums of nineteen forty four yeah so a little
3: disheartening. I still see him as a Raider. I mean, he was buried as a Raider. Uh, although I'm not sure, maybe in some way he be, he was what the Raiders became. It was misleading, and it was hard for me to kind of see because as a 12 year old kid that just idolizes man, I I don't know if he necessarily misled me on purpose. I don't want to think that, but I I think I would just as as a little bit of a of a of a PSA if you're if you are you know yeah, yeah that's true because
0: researching of my, my, uh, my other side of the family my dad's dad Lloyd blocker he uh, he was on an lst in the atlantic and uh he talked about his ship being torpedoed um lst 503 and hitting his head on the ceiling when his ship was hit and he flew out of the bunk and this and that and then um i i got the muster rolls from the ship and saw that it had never been torpedoed and that the only torpedoing was when he was drunk um, at uh, New Orleans and he was taken to the hospital because short patrol got him and had to lump him over the head with a nightstick a couple times. <laughs> so uh, that was the only torpedoing that took place was uh, him getting drunk. But um, yeah, that was kind of,
3: that was kind of, I didn't really want to find that out. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, um, I didn't mean to get us too far away from, from 449. And EWO, but I'm actually going to look for, for this paperwork because now I'm curious. But um, Hey, fellas, can I yeah. tell you
0: uh, about this? Um, uh, I kind of want to talk about one more person that I interviewed.
1: Yeah, real um, quick before we do, just because we're on a topic of paperwork and looking for relatives. One of the cool things I did find was my grandfather's uh, registers report. And for those of you familiar with this, it's kind of like a um, identification card when you enlist. And I'm actually looking at his. So it has the race and white, height five foot eight, staggering 160 pounds, hair brown, complexion light. But here's the interesting part. It says other obvious physical characteristics that would aid in the identification. And then below that says scar on the little finger of right hand. <laughs> it's like they were that minor cause you never know. Maybe that yeah. something happened to him. That would be the only thing, you know, his right hand. Well, there's a the little scar, but and actually shows, you know, where he, he he enlisted at local board number nine in Burlington, Boone County, Kentucky. And uh, so I've been able to find little things like that, but um, very little actual records because I think probably his stuff was in the fire that we've all talked about so many times. But uh, before we get to the next story, if you guys thank you guys so much for your continued support, we are uh, wrapping up this year. I think next week we'll be off because well, it's Christmas time and then uh, we haven't quite discussed what we're going to do New, Year, New Year's Eve time. So if you don't hear us live in the next two weeks, it's, it's the holidays. We have families. We'll be back. Don't worry. We're not going anywhere. want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support. For those of you who have signed up for Patreon, I just uploaded a video. I've already got a few emails. I'm doing some free sticker giveaways. All you have to do is message us through the app your address, uh, what podcast you want the sticker for, whether it's this one or the other podcast. And if you have a preferred color, maybe you want your sticker about your car. I completely understand. If you got a blue car, you don't want a bright red sticker. Gotcha. So simply send us your name, your podcast logo that you want, and the preferred color, and we will send that to you, no cost to you, as a thanks for helping us. And um, if you guys haven't done so already, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, sign up for Patreon. Uh, the lowest plan's a dollar a month. The most expensive one is a whopping $3.50. That's cheaper than a cup of Starbucks. Uh, it goes a long way to help out what we're doing here. And if you haven't done so while you're on the Internet, head over to YouTube.com and like and subscribe us over at the Digital 410 channel. You can watch all of our live streams on Monday and Tuesday and all the other stuff. And then, of course, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Um, we're over there at What's the Scuttlebutt. You can find us there. And um, go ahead, Dennis, with the story of the uh, next person you want to uh, – shine a spotlight on.
0: It's actually uh, Mary, Mary Urig uh, from Orange City, Iowa. She was uh, a tough nut to crack. Um, I knew that she was married to Ensign Frederick Cooper, who was missing in action. Um, but whenever I, and she was always very helpful with like, letters that he wrote her uh, providing me copies i ended up uh, accumulating about 500 letters that were written from the fellows to their families. some but um she wouldn't get into any details and i i couldn't figure it out it was frustrating and um then about 10 years later into the research uh, she calls me up one day and she says i'm ready to talk and i said my goodness i'm okay Oh, what's changed? She says, my husband has passed away. I was like, Oh, okay. She, she felt that it was uh, kind of disrespectful to talk about her other husband while her,
2: you know sure. what I'm saying? It, it was like this respect
0: thing. And um, so I, I told her, I says, well, just a minute. I want to get Mitch Weiss um, the author uh, on the phone as well. So let's set up a time that we can, get this uh, fresh, first telling. So she's like, okay, so we set up the meeting. Uh, we get me, Mitch and uh, Mary on the phone. And uh, I, I had a digital recorder going, of course. Um, and she told us that when uh, Fred went to, to San Francisco, uh, he was gonna catch up to the ship. They had already been through several campaigns, the marshals they were at, they were at Quash Lane uh, in a talk. They had been on the small island chain campaigns, and they were going island to island to island, wiping out the different Japanese weather stations. And um, he had missed all that. He missed the Marianas, and so he's shipping out. His first mission is going to be EWO. Anyway, he she sends her a telegram and says, um, I'm in San Francisco. I have three days. Come, please, and leave Rebecca with my sister, Yulela, and uh, just come out and be with me for a couple days. So... She gets on the train and travels across from Iowa uh, over to San Francisco, and uh, she's fretting about, you know, do I have the right outfit on? Uh, Do I look good? Uh, Am I too? uh, Do I look thin, you know, and this and that. And of course, he just he's just so glad to see her And she steps off of that train and he's she sees him immediately and he's just beaming. And then she goes on to describe this almost like a, almost like a Cary Grant, Deborah Carr kind of three-day event in the city, you know, uh, San Francisco. And she's describing them running and giggling and trying to jump onto the tram at the last second and the trolley and going to the fish market and, and going to Chinatown and catching an opera and... Um, the, the final day is there and, and he's gonna, he's gonna be leaving. And he asks her in the hotel, the plan was to see him off at the ship, but he asks her, uh, if they can say goodbye at the hotel. And, um, so they say goodbye and, and he leaves. And she tells me that, you know, she had been kept it together this whole time, uh, for him was strong, but when he closed the door and he left, she just lost it and just started crying and about, 15 minutes later, she said that she heard the doorknob and she looked up and he was standing there and he just had tears streaming down his cheeks and he just walked in and they just held each other and he just couldn't bear leaving her and he just needed to hold her again. And, um, and then he left and then, uh, he went to Iwo Jima and of course was the, uh, gunnery officer on the number one gun and was blown off the ship and and never, well, you'll, you'll see in the book uh, what happens to him. And But um, she did, she then took us to a place that hadn't been seen in 70 years. And when the telegram arrives at her in-laws house and she was there, and uh, she said it was like another person um, was screaming. And she, would, she said she did a couple laps around the house. And I gotta tell you fellas, Like I interviewed like 400 people, like that is, it was, this was a part of her heart that had been locked away for 70 years and she had never opened it. And uh, that, I mean, the sounds she was making as she was crying and moaning, telling us the story. And we kept trying to get off the phone and tell her she didn't have to go there, but she insisted and uh it was like it was yesterday and uh she opened that up and showed us this special place in her heart that it was reserved for fred and she was just so thankful we were telling his story so that he wouldn't be forgotten you know but i uh, i just never forget her because that you know her family never even knew how, how much she had been hurting but it was just like so
3: powerful those, are- uh, that's, I mean, you know, if, if that isn't what we do in a nutshell, I mean, this the appreciation that all of those people must have for you and your efforts and keeping us, keeping it going. And, you know, I, the first thing I think of is um, when we, when we think of the acronym PDSD, we think of, we think of guys over in combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know so many times when people have said, Oh, you know, thanks for, thanks for going over there. If they found out I went overseas and I always tell them, thank my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my girlfriend who's now been my wife for almost 20 years, um, that, that it affected many, many more people, mm-hmm. you know, than we really, than we realized, you know, we, uh, at air shows, we go up to World War II. That's we asked them for their autograph, but not for their, the wives that were at home, the moms that were worrying. Um, and it's important and, and I think that's a perfect segue. I, I know we're probably getting close to wrapping it up, but I think this is a great segue. Um, because uh, you know, the term hero, um I think everybody has their own definition of it. We've seen it over millennia used in different ways, um, and how we interpret what a hero is from Achilles to, you know, Superman now. Mm-hmm. Um but I have no hesitation um, at all in calling the man sitting next to me uh, one of today's heroes. Um, And, and he's not going to be the first to say that. Um, But I'd like for, uh, for us to wrap the show up with, with, with Dennis, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about what you do for us and what you've been doing for over 20 years um and and the product that's come from that and the amount of people that you've helped i was in uh i was in college
0: sitting in class when timothy mcveigh blew up the federal building in oklahoma city and our building shook and plaster fell from the ceiling and we ran outside and they put up a tv in the uh conference room and and we got to see that it was our city and We ran to the parking lot and saw the smoke spires from downtown. And we ran back into the side and looked at the TV. And there was a newscaster on there with a microphone, and he was crying. And he said, we need all medical people downtown now. We need all medical people downtown, please. And two carloads of people went packed up and went downtown. And I was not one of them. And that feeling, that gut punch that when my city, my community needed me, and I had nothing that I could give. I said, never again. And I joined that next summer, I got into an EMS program and I was trained as a medic an EMT. And I joined the EMS and fire department. And then in San Antonio, I worked um, uh, for, on the level one trauma team. I was in the trauma team for 12 years, night shift, and then uh, 10 years in other ERs. So 23 years altogether, EMS fire. and uh, uh, er and you know i i like to think that that shock wave from what timothy mcveigh you know he, he meant it for something to demoralize mm-hmm. the nation but I, I don't know about anybody else but he sure inspired me and i went on to save probably hundreds thousands of people over the years and i went on to train other medics other nurses other docs who have gone on and saved other people so that shock wave is still going And not how he intended, but it's still going, people are being saved. And uh, one of the things that came from that is the same thing that afflicted my grandfather and the same thing that inflicted Eugene and the others was the night terrors and the PTSD and the darkness. I I call it myself, I called it the dark passenger from Mm -hmm. this TV show, Dexter, but... Uh, so what seemed to fit me was the dark passenger, and it was just this uh, thing that came in, and I wrote about it, um, and it's 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 called it's called Clear. It's kind of hard to see, but and um, it's on Amazon. It follows my journey through EMS and fire and ER. Uh, the battles of PTSD, the battles of suicidal thoughts and uh, victory over it. Uh, the tremendous uh, leadership that I had that insisted that I get help and the love for my daughters and my family that made me get help. The willingness of my own heart to be willing and then the work to get it done, to get the help. And that resulted in me and my passion now, uh, saving those who save others. And that's that's where I'm at right now. So yeah.
3: Well, I, I uh I can't say this enough. I'm so glad he made the trip today. It's Absolutely. So good to see you again. It's been Pleasure to having him on. Um and I just thought it was just going to be such a treat for you guys and for our listeners to have somebody like Dennis, is so multifaceted, so inspiring in so many ways. Um it's just it really means a lot. So appreciate you being here. I yeah. really
0: appreciate you guys very much. Um And a side note, if I may, um, my copy of With the Old Breed is dog-eared and uh, warm and highlighted and read multiple times and recommended to I don't know how many people. And just, yeah, (laughs) it's just such an honor to be here and to meet meet y'all and Henry. and.
2: uh, We've heard some heavy stuff, man. I mean... I think this this show takes the cake as far as being just powerful and moving. and Absolutely. And getting to the heart, you know, of what we do here. Well, What Jeff and Don do, and they invited me to be a part of this world a little over a year ago. And I've never stopped being grateful for that. And part of that is getting to meet guys like you, Dennis.
1: And shout out to Jeff for bringing you to our, our attention. Yeah, I mean, it was
2: Jeff's idea, so... Of course, oh, don't
1: it, but. And this is a great example um, for something we've kind of been mentioning the last few episodes. If you're a listener of the show and you have knowledge on a particular subject matter that we don't cover and you think you can maintain a conversation as great as Dennis did for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour and a half. If you think you can do that, please reach out to us. We are always looking. Look, there's three of us here, but... World War II is a huge subject, and we can't know everything about everything. And so, please, if, beautiful
2: thing about it, if you
1: guys are listening <laughs> and there's something you just like, why aren't you covering this? No one talks about this. If you want, and you know about, it, please reach out to us, and we'll make it happen. You can come on the show, and you can school us and uh, shine light on something that you feel gets overshadowed. And uh, please email us at mail call at But I think it's going to wrap. Actually, I hate to do this because Jeff wrapped up the show on such a fine point but Dennis threw it out there at the beginning of the show why is your name not on the book Dennis <laughs> <laughs> people been waiting <laughs> but 130 minutes he has not said why is his name not on the book
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, i really enjoyed Mitch's writing and uh, I, I approached him because when i when I wrote a manuscript it just felt like a textbook and so i, I knew I needed to get somebody so i i approached Approached to Mitch, and uh, he said, "Well, if the book's going to be any good, we're going to need at least twenty-five interviews." I saw I've interviewed 400 people. He goes, "My God, how did you, how did you get that many people to tell you about the worst day of their life?" And I says, "Well, uh, Mama told me to find out, so I did." <laughs> but uh, the reason I'm not on the book cover is that uh, he he indicated to me early on that. Um, It would not be profitable for him uh, if he had to uh, share the proceeds, the royalties, and he didn't want to share the book cover title with anybody else. Um, I was very aware of it. It was everything was up front. Uh, I could have backed out of it, but I realized that his writing style was tremendous and that I would have the opportunity because he told me I was going to be very involved with the writing and the manuscript, and I was. I wrote all the chapters, the Japanese perspective in the book and uh i learned so much from him and uh was just so grateful um but that was one of the things that i had to uh i had to be willing not to be on the cover um he didn't want to share the cover with anybody um it was really his first book that where he didn't have to share the cover so yeah it was kind of like my dad said well if you Do it on your own, what's your readership gonna be? I says, probably a thousand people, maybe you, mom, (laughs) grandma, (laughs) and the neighbors. And he says, How about if you do it with Mitch? I says, Well, the sky's the limit. And then he says, Well, you got a free education out of the deal. Right, right, right. And what's the what's the purpose of the book? So that people will know about the LCI gunboats at Egema and what happened. He goes, Well, there you go. What do you want to do? Do you wanna have a readership of a thousand or do you want to have the sky's the limit for grandpa's story? Well, then that made the decision, right?
3: And I think on that note. And you know, <laughs> real quick, I don't know if anybody else caught on this. I don't know if you care if I mentioned this or not, but you know, we we caught Dennis's last name blocker. You know, if if you're if you're familiar with old cinema, old TV <laughs> shows. Maybe the longest running TV
2: series. <laughs> <maybe> <laughs> <ever>. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Henry knows Dan Blocker. Hoss. Uh and I don't remember the uh the actual connection. And my dad. Yeah. It's cousin. it's your dad's cousin. Yeah. Hoss Cotwright's writes this cousin. Yeah. In my house right now. I just want to <laughs> let y'all know that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Small world. Yeah.
1: And that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's in Your Head podcast. We want to thank each and every one of you for what's t- in your t- head. What's in my head is too much wine. <laughs> Wraps up another episode of the What's the Scottabutt podcast, <laughs> yeah. your favorite World War II based podcast. We will be off next week for the holiday. Chance we'll be off for New Year's Eve. But if not, we'll you in two weeks. For myself, Jeff, Henry, and Dennis. Thank you guys so much and we will talk to you you. all very very soon.
3: This has been a Digital 410 production.